Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Nick Urata of Devotchka. No one has been more creative and accomplished in the Colorado music scene. People continue to search for ways to describe Devotchka's sound. The instrumentation is unorthodox, sousaphone, clarinet, and accordion, as well as guitars and percussion. The band style has linked everything from traditional Eastern European folk dances and Argentine tango to Mexican mariachi marches and spaghetti Western instrumentals. It's topped off with Nick's alternately flamboyant and sensual crooning, and that unique recipe has taken Nick and his bandmates to the national record charts and the world's biggest stages, and even Hollywood. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me. You are the offspring of Italian parents, second-generation immigrants? Uh, Yeah, they were both born here to my grandparents who came here. You've alluded to the various musical influences you were exposed to as a kid in New York. Everything from listening to the old crooners on your dad's hi-fi to going to the movies, seeing classic westerns. When I was banging around trying to figure out my own sound, I kept drifting back nostalgically to those times. I was lucky to have musical grandparents. My grandfather was a musician. So there was always lots of music in the house, but those people died when I was pretty young and it's all drifted away. So I did find myself very nostalgic for those sounds. That was a big part of where we ended up. Did you have formal musical training? I started studying music from five years old on. I went the rebellious route once I got to college and drifted away from classes and did my own thing, but yeah, I always studied it. I kept (laughs) studying through college, but I didn't go for any degrees or anything. It seemed like there was two paths to go, and if I kept studying what everybody was telling me to do, that I was never going to get my own voice, so I drifted away and diverged, but you always end up coming back to your training. What instrument did you start on? I started on trumpet. I played trumpet all through high school and a little bit in college and then in the formative years of the band. I switched to guitar once I started to get interested in girls and rock and roll. That's not a unique path. (laughs) (laughs) You left home to live in Chicago on Cicero Avenue. A legendary neighborhood, a lot of cultures represented there, and a wide range of musical sounds as well. Yeah, that was very instructive. It's an amazing nursery for bands, the city of Chicago, because there are so many musicians, and there's a bar on every corner, and the weather is so... It's harsh, and (laughs) so people are often uh, driven indoors to the bars, and so there's always live music happening, and at the time there was just a huge Latin influence and a huge retro influence going on, and you had all these Central American and South American immigrants 
blending with the Polish neighborhoods that had been entrenched in there. So I immediately started to notice there were certain threads that brought these all together. And if you could somehow tap into those without trying to be a purist of any kind. That was all part of my formative years when I was trying to figure out how could I make my own sound, my own band. At the time, I was a sideman bouncing around from band to band, playing guitar and trumpet. And watching the singers and thinking in the back of my mind, I know I could do it better. <laughs> the art of writing songs, it's a long learning curve. It was for me. And a very wise man once said that you have to write a hundred bad songs before you write one good one. John Allison, one of my earliest collaborators, and he got really good at the accordion really fast, which I have a deep love for. And we started writing these songs that became early Devotchka albums. And one of the ways we tested our metal, and my voice was terrible at that time, is we would go to these various train stops <laughs> and try to make some money. And we never made any money, but it was a good way to get in front of a, a hostile audience. <laughs> You've never talked that much about the Regers. And I Maybe assume there's a reason for well, that, that, would, that would be my point. They were described as an up-and-coming alternative country act. I'd go with uh, that. And we had a harder edge to us, but much like I am today, we're all over the place, genre-wise. But that is where I met John Allison, and we realized that we're in the wrong outfit. <laughs> That's when we started conspiring and writing our own songs. It was that time in my life where I was just bouncing around trying to figure out who the hell I was as a musician. You and John picked up stakes and moved to Colorado. Yeah, we had a lot of friends from our Reacher days. And at the time, Boulder was a very easy place. There's this kind of barter system going on with <laughs> people who didn't have any kind of real jobs or careers. <laughs> one of us would work at the bar, the other one would work at the pizza place, the record store. You just sort of traded <laughs> in a major way. It was a fun place to start a band, for sure. There's lots of basements to be cheaply rented. <laughs> that were turned into practice studios. That's where I met some of the other members who were studying at the University of Colorado Music School. So I started hanging out there and trying to convince people to play in my band. <laughs> yeah, and commensurate with the move, you had started formulating a vision of what you wanted Devotchka to be. I did have a few songs, yeah. I kept developing them with anyone really. At the time, we had a couple of different bands that were all cross-pollinating, and we were kind of like a gang of multi-instrumentalists. We used to play with Munley, Jason Munley, which later morphed into Slim Cessna, and it was an exciting time to be a musician, an exciting group of players that were just up for anything and probably where the early Debatska stuff came from. Process, people coming and going. You had to be viewed as a pretty creative guy and on your own journey. There had to also be people telling you that you couldn't do it. I don't know if they did that to your face. 
I did have a few connections in the music industry that were rising in their status. I always sought advice from them and always gave them my music and asked them to help me. <laughs> and they, a lot of them did tell me that I should probably go back to the drawing board. You know? <laughs> maybe learn how to sing was one of the comments. Learn how to sing, maybe not so much accordion and what's with the tuba. <laughs> I got a lot of that in the early days. It took me forever to finish the first album, Super Melodrama, and I did take it to a friend of mine who became quite a prominent booking agent and he told me I should probably just shelf it <laughs> and write the next one. <laughs> he was trying to be helpful. And he was probably right in a lot of ways, but we didn't. And we put it out on our own and it turned out to be the sort of the catalyst of us becoming a touring band. And we actually ended up getting a bunch of pretty nice reviews about it. The press liked it. So we were off and running. And if I had listened to him, who knows what would happen. Your greatest accomplishment was finding like-minded musicians to make music with and who wanted to make a life out of it, exactly. as opposed to being in the moment. Tom Hagerman plays violin and accordion and piano. Jeannie Schroeder sings, plays the sousaphone, double yep. bass, and Sean King handles percussion and trumpet. The most repeated lore is that the name Dvachka came from a clockwork orange. The vocabulary was called Nadsat in the movie and means young woman. It is accurate, yeah. Okay. It's a Russian word. And are the V and the K supposed to be capitalized? That's just more of a vanity thing. Okay. Um, yeah, the real word is not spelled that way, but that's the clockwork orange version of it. I just always thought it was a beautiful word and a beautiful way to describe a girl. Yeah, and that's where we got the name. Dvachka released its own records and toured on your own dime. The whole indie do-it-yourself MO. You released the Una Volta album in 2004. accompanied a burlesque queen, Dita Von Teese. Mm -hmm. Burlesque was in an interesting revival phase, tongue-in-cheek, but you were basically the pit orchestra for these events. Yeah, that's right. That was one of our first big breaks. We didn't really realize it at the time, but it was right at the height of the burlesque revival, and they were producers of a show were based here in Denver, and they were drawing acts from all over the country and putting together this big variety show and seeing us playing around town in our vintage ruffled shirts and whatnot <laughs> and, and playing our sort of vintage brand of music and thought it would be a good match. And so we began as the pit orchestra. It was another great stepping stone because we got to tour all over the country with them and we were the only band in the show. So there was a lot of exposure to our original music. So we went over a bunch of audience on that tour. Were you forced to learn even more instrumentation? There was a lot of dead air in the show <laughs> because <laughs> the acts were changing sets and changing outfits and everything. So we had to think on our feet and improv. We could only afford to bring four of us as musicians. So we're, yeah, we were all constantly playing horns and percussion to make it sound like a bigger pit orchestra. So yeah, it was trial by fire. But the end result was definitely another step towards our unique sound. Putting on these types of shows with all the ambition, you had to be flirting with... Uh Poverty? <laughs> I don't know. How to... <laughs> That's not a money-making venture. 
No, it was not. It's par for the course when you're starting a band or any artistic endeavor. You're never really sure if you're going to cross over into where you could actually quit your day jobs. Yeah. <laughs> we kept our day jobs for quite a while. You and the band stay the course, didn't get distracted. You know, at that time in your life, it's hard to find like a career. So everyone is kind of bouncing around and not working in the area they were trained for necessarily. And so we had this double life where we were playing our own music in these romantic settings. And we were connecting with people in other towns far away. And so we got a little taste of what it would be like. I think that was a big part of it. We got a little taste of making it work. So that definitely inspired us to keep going and working harder at it. Your songs became transcendent. The music goes from sweeping to haunting to moments of ecstasy. A big tipping point was the song, How It Ends. The title track of an album released in 2004, it introduced Dabachka to a wider audience when it was used in the trailer for a motion picture, Everything is Illuminated. Did you know that song was special when you wrote it? I've thought that it was special in the way that it came to me. It was one of those rare occurrences that I'm sure you hear other artists talk about how something lines up correctly and you're just a conduit or you're a messenger and you get this idea beamed and that one was one that was given to me one day when I was screwing around with my little Casio keyboard. In fact, that $8 Casio keyboard is the keyboard that you hear at the beginning of that song and at the beginning of that movie. That part was unique. It haunts me. I always think of like, what if I had decided to go bowling with my friends that day or something, you know? Like, <laughs> and I didn't write down that song. Cause it, it comes down to like one day that you just happen to be in the right place. That was a period where I was actually uh, on a painting crew here talking about being poor. And it just allowed me to come home every day at three o'clock to an empty house and just start writing start working on my songs until the house filled up with other people. So it was a lucky, fruitful period of writing that we're still coasting off of. The idea of production, given all the instrumentation and nuances of your music, to get it down in the studio. You obviously have that all in mind as you're putting these songs together. Yeah, it was very out of necessity. I had to learn how to record because we couldn't afford a lot of studio time. And also it became, for me, a valuable tool in songwriting was recording and editing that way and listening back was always a huge part of our sound. It's like a little spark that you keep blowing on until it becomes a flame and then you wrestle it out of the ether and then you don't want to just hand it over to some guy without looking over his shoulder and making sure he's <laughs> yeah. to the detriment of some songs, but <laughs> it is very hands-on and also I'm kind of a control freak. But yeah, it's hard to let go and not be a part of that. And it's also a crapshoot, too. It's like you don't know if you're ever going to really get the essence of a song, and at some point you have to cut it off and move on. So that part's very difficult, too. How It Ends left an impression. Dvachka was asked to compose and perform the majority of the music for Little Miss Sunshine, that 2006 indie film that became the surprise hit of that year. The film got four Academy Award nominations. Dvachka was nominated for Best Compilation Soundtrack Album. The wonderful thing is that this circumstance wasn't deal-making, not a backroom negotiation between artists and managers. Like a lot of things in your career, it was a stroke of fate really for Dvachka. Was. 
Yeah, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris are the directing team that put Little Miss Sunshine together. They had been working on it for years, developing the script. And they always had an idea of having a band. They've made some iconic music videos, Smashing Pumpkins, Red Hot Chili Peppers, that great golden age of music videos. Some of the best ones were those two. So this was their first feature, and they really wanted to have a band be involved with it. They were searching around, and one of the only radio stations that started playing us was KCRW in Los Angeles. We were lucky enough to randomly catch the Morning Becomes Eclectic's DJs. Our manager handed him one of those burnt CDs with a Sharpie on it at one of the radio conferences, and he actually listened to it because he's that kind of a guy, and he actually started playing it. out their house one Saturday morning and they happened to hear You Love Me and started looking into us. And unbeknownst to us, they came to a, a couple of shows and spied on us. And then they got in touch with us and we started exchanging material and we made it happen. So now, as these things work, Debochka's music is in vogue. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> funny because a lot of those songs were out before they were in the movie and it wasn't like I was quitting my painting job. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big bump for us. And we did get to focus on our craft. And we just jumped into another full-time job, which was touring and writing. Uh, yeah. A couple of years later, you signed to Anti Records, an imprint that's known for releasing a lot of music from diverse artists, Tom Waits, Nick Cave, Billy Bragg. You put out a couple of albums, 2008, it was a Mad and Faithful Telling. in 2011 at the top 100 on the billboard charts but a big leap both business-wise and personally it gets to a point where you just you can't do everything yourself and it was great to have a creative partner like that they started that label for tom waits which is a huge hero for us and a huge influence so that was pretty special and nick cave of course so to be on a label with them was pretty special And your notoriety was also buoyed by the live shows, which had become extravagant. <laughs> Credit for putting your money back into it. You've had belly dancers, trapeze artists, different configurations for different shows. She played Coachella and Bonnaroo, some of the biggest festivals. I always wanted to collaborate with other artists, visual and dancers, and, and have a circus atmosphere was my original intent. So it's always kind of stayed with us. 
Yeah, I like to give the audience a little bit more to look at. <laughs> yeah. You performed with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra several years back, and you turned the 2012 event into a live album that you titled, in a fit of originality, Debochka Live <laughs> with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> Sharing the stage with 60 musicians who are moving air. What was the creative process like? We collaborate with a lot of their members, played on some of our other albums and become friends. And so we were on each other's radar. And I'm not sure how the idea for the show first came about, but we were given a small window to get it done and we did it. And the result was the live recording. It was such a success that we were able to do like a yearly reprise of it and add a couple different songs each year. And it was a really great collaboration. Since then, it's become a little bit more in vogue to have a pop band come and play with the orchestra. We were happy to put Spotlight on the symphony. So we have this world-class symphony here that a lot of people that come to indie rock shows don't quite know about. And so I think there was a lot of cross-pollination there. I have Tom Hagerman on my team who came up in the orchestral world. And we had developed some arrangements for the albums already. So we had basic framework to expand into the whole orchestra. And Tom took it and ran with it, and since then has done it for many other bands in town too. Was it a woo moment to be in the pocket in front of an orchestra on stage? It's pretty amazing. It's a balancing act, because the two worlds are probably not meant to be together. You see that drum set sitting next to us. <laughs> <laughs> Juxtaposed with a $50,000 violin, there's bound to be some resistance there, but. When it worked, it was amazing. It was like riding a huge wave. The thrill of playing Red Rocks? It is amazing, but I'm not going to lie to you, it's hard to relax up there for at least the first few songs. And especially with the symphony, like you have to count every bar. It's not like you're up there with your four friends reading off each other. You're on the clock. I had a brief stint as a... I was basically a glorified towel boy at Red Rocks. <laughs> so I was working behind the scenes there, watching bands go up there and slay it in front of this huge crowd. So it was a nice bit of redemption to actually get to be a performer there. You composed the soundtrack for the Jim Carrey movie, I Love You, Philip Morris. phone started ringing. You wrote music for Crazy Stupid Love, Ruby Sparks, the films Paddington and the Cobbler in 2014. You did the crime romance Focus in 2015. Film music, its own discipline, was that something you aspired to? I was always a huge fan of it and certainly you could see we aspired to have that sort of sound on our records. You know, it actually led to us being in 
little bit of sunshine. <laughs> so uh, it is a shockingly different world once you get into it. But yeah, I had always wanted to be a part of it. It still basically adheres to tradition. When we can, we, of course, love to record on the same sound stages. There's only three or four of them in Hollywood. And when there's a budget, we do it. But the budget's not always there, and computers have taken a lot of the burden off of the live orchestra. But it's basically still the same process. The composer's pretty much the last one to get the film, and they're pretty much like, here, now it's your problem. Fix it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any more money uh, and no time, but we need an amazing score that's going to take this to another emotional level. So that's usually how you start out the job. The director is usually firmly in charge. You're ushering it into reality for all these years. And the story dictates where the music goes, of course, and the performances. There's so many people involved in the film, and everyone has their opinion about the music. <laughs> and it's usually vastly different. It had to be a crazy period in the nascent stages, juggling your time between Davotchka's career and doing the film scoring. It got demanding sometimes, but it was a good place to be because I was just constantly working on music. When you don't have a deadline, that can be a pitfall. You just sort of meander and don't finish anything. So this way I was constantly in the studio and constantly writing and learning production techniques. So in that way it was positive. But yeah, there's never enough time. The new Devotchka album is titled This Night Falls Forever. Albums are snapshots of specific creative periods. It wasn't clear right from the start. I wish I had that sort of vision <laughs> when I was starting something out, but uh, it usually comes into focus and takes on a life of its own. But this does represent that kind of period where I was entrenched in Hollywood and working with these world-class orchestras on these romantic sound stages. And then at the same time, we were collaborating with the CSO and Denver Center for Performing Arts, so I wanted to bring those all onto the record somehow. The time flew by. I mean, it wasn't like we were on a beach relaxing. We were playing shows, and we kept getting these great collaborations. They're amazing, but they did take us away from finishing our own songs. And also working with these world-class orchestras and working in film, it just seemed a little anticlimactic to go back into the studio just the four of us and bang out 10 songs. So I did take my time and I did purposely branch out into using some of the film orchestras I was working with. And I wanted the lyrics to be something that would stand the test of time and it took some time to get there. I think all of these songs are nostalgic. This Night Falls Forever did focus in on this theme that I was realizing 
and you're in your formative years and you're thrown into these situations where it comes down to two or three nights in your life that probably have changed the trajectory of your future and you don't ever realize it you're never ready for it but it happens so that was sort of the idea behind this night falls forever that romantic electricity that's in the air when the sun is just set and you can see it on the album cover the sky becomes that otherworldly blue and just the possibilities for what could happen are endless oh it's like a straight shot through the backyards and the vacant lots through the very chambers of my heart to the part of town that Tell me about the song Straight Shot. Straight Shot was the revisiting of one of those nights from my youth. The catalyst was a lot of those nights that I was talking about happened in New York and with the backdrop of New York City, which is one of those places where anything can happen. And I still go back there. And the city's always constantly changing and forming endlessly under construction, but you'll find yourself always in some place, be it like a subway stop or an exit ramp or a building doorway where you'll just be flooded with memories that you had forgotten about. And that happened to me on a trip back there, and that was the catalyst for that song. The Vachka sound isn't one that's usually associated with Colorado's musical climate. You have always been a good ambassador for Denver, even if people are totally surprised that you come from here. You've proved that geographical stereotypes don't hold up especially in the early years because of the success of the movie. It was a hit around the world, and we got to travel and play around the world. And I did get a lot of that from some of the foreign press and even domestic press. There was this geographical thing of being from Denver. They thought we're into country music or we're all still mining for gold out here, you know? <laughs> the buffalo roaming yeah. the streets. Yeah. Yeah. My answer was always I found it to be very transient, and most of my friends and musicians are from other places, and that's what's always made this place amazing. And I always point to Kerouac and the Beats and their writings. They were drawn here for the same thing, and I think they were inspired by whatever it is here. Think about the influence they had. Dean Moriarty was a Denver street kid. He had a pretty big role in spreading Eastern philosophy to suburban Americans. Is there film work on the burner? Yeah, I've been working on a really cool documentary that's going to play at Tribeca this year. It's called 17 Blocks. I made this connection here with Davey Rothbart of Found Magazine. Davey's a great storyteller and has done a few other books and movies. And he found this family in the inner city of D.C. back in the 90s and gave this nine-year-old boy, Emmanuel, a camera. And so he's had 20 years of footage with this family and all the crazy stuff that happened to them over the years. We edited it to a film and I provided the score for it. People have been describing it as boyhood meets boys in the hood. <laughs> and it's pretty apt. What's your favorite musician's joke, Nick? What do you call a guy who trips over chords and hangs out with musicians? I don't know, Nick. A drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Got a good laugh. So. Thank you. Um, yeah. Always leave it laughing. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org.